something happening here But what it is ain't exactly clear There's a man with a gun over there Telling me I got to beware I think it's time we stop Children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down I'm C.J. Layton, coming to you from inside the secret broadcast cave of the Phantom Radio Studio in Lake Wales, Florida, home of the premier radio bowling talk show. PBA Hall of Famer Len Nicholson was instrumental in developing the PBA Lane Maintenance Program in 1971, and it is still referred to today. He was a founding member of the Bowling Foundation, which was created to find solutions to scoring issues in bowling. Len has been with the Kegel Company since 1995. He was also a recipient of the Bowling Industries Flowers for the Living Award and the John Davis Award in recognition for his contributions to the sport. And now the Phantom and his friends are hosting the Phantom Radio Junior Bowling Club. The Phantom will tell you more. So Phantom fans, let's welcome our host, Len Nicholson, the Phantom. Well, thank you, CJ. And a reminder that Phantom Radio is presented by the Cagle Company the number one lane maintenance company in the world. And for all of your lane maintenance needs, including 24-hour technical support, you can always rely on the Kegel Company. So go to kegel.net. Well, Phantom fans, this week we have yet another very special guest to talk to as we continue to interview who's who in the world of bowling in each and every area of our great sport. And our guest this week is a man with many titles, including professor. He has taught sports management, economics, and finance at some outstanding universities, including Hofstra, St. John's, and the University Institute of Technology in New York. He's a highly respected lecturer who has interesting classes that he spices up with some humor in order to keep his students alert. He says he's a tough grader because he wants his students to study and therefore succeed. And you ask, what does this have to do with our usual subject, which is bowling? Well, let's get him out here and find out. So, Phantom fans, here is Glenn Kirshner. Welcome to Phantom Radio, Glenn. Well, thanks, Phantom. I hope I can live up to that introduction. Well, you can. Uh, you know, he sent me a little bio on yourself, but uh, you're, you're a modest man. And I did some more research and uh, you are a well-loved professor and your students, uh, they all say you're a tough grader, but it's all made uh, the ones that really study uh, succeed. And that's the that's the end result is can you get your students to succeed? And by by teaching them the right things, it all reflects on you. So. I'm really happy that you're here. And uh, did you ever bowl yourself? Yeah, I grew up, you know, like like a lot of kids in my neighborhood. I started bowling in the, the midget league on, on Saturday morning. Uh, Sheridan Bowl in Mineola on Long Island. Uh, and that's where I started bowling. And I've taken a couple of hiatuses along the way for four or five years when I didn't pick up a ball. I still bowl today. Uh, there's a lot of senior tournaments around the area. So, so I've always bowled and I still do. Well, you know, uh, I was going to ask exactly where you're from, even though I do know that you, you, you know, you teach back east. But uh, I've got a lot of really good friends in New York, and uh, I love New York. I 
I, I could spend my whole career there. Uh, it's just an interesting place. We used to have tournaments out on Long Island. We used to have tournaments at Madison Square Garden. I got a lot of friends back there, but your accent certainly tells us that you are from New York, man. I love that voice. <laughs> all right. So first of all, Glenn, I want to ask you, I know you wrote a book because I just saw the Bowler's Journal edition of an interview that Jean-Marc Menzion wrote. It's a wonderful article. We want to expand upon that. So uh, obviously you wrote a book. And why about Andy Verapapa? Well, you know, I told you I grew up in Mineola. Like all the kids who wanted to get their first bowling ball, we all went to the local pro shop called Bowmart. And Bowmart was owned by Frank Varapapa. That was Andy's, Andy's son. Andy had three children, two daughters, and Frank. You know, it wasn't really through Bowmart that I got to know Frank, but every afternoon when I was in college, around 3 o'clock, a bunch of guys would show up at the bowling center at Sheridan Bowl, and we bowled pot games for $2. $2 a game when I was making $63 a week working the desk. Uh, it, it was a lot of money. Yeah. And that's kind of when I cut my teeth on, on how to bowl under pressure. Also, how to give the needle, you know, and, and how to talk a little bit of trash. But I always remember Frank was always there to help. You know, if he saw something in my game that he thought I could improve on, he was always happy to, to tell me. And, you know, in, in a lot of ways, he was like Andy. But the one way he wasn't like Andy was Frank was very humble man, very humble. Whereas, you know, I think if people know anything about Andy, they know that he was brash and outspoken, uh, honest to a fault. Frank was just a great guy. And, you know, I got to know him a little bit. Then, you know, he passed away not too long after that, I think in 1988. Uh, but I did become friends with his son, Andy II, who's Andy Varapapa's grandson. And Andy II is really the guy that's kept Andy's spirit alive with the website. Uh, I still see him. He goes around to PBA tournaments. I got in touch with him and I was thinking about writing a paper for an academic conference because I do study popular culture and sports. And I thought Andy Varapapa was a great topic. Uh, I then asked him, I said, can you direct me toward the biographies that have been written about your grandfather? And he said, no one's written a biography of my grandfather. And I said, well, they're going to get one now. <laughs> and literally at that point, I said, I got to write this book. So that's, that's how it all started. Uh, good for you. So uh, one question that I didn't know, uh, was Frank a very good bowler himself? He was. He, he made the finals of the Eastern Open, which was the biggest tournament on the East Coast for many years. He did bowl some PBA events early on when the PBA started. And uh, in fact, he cashed in the very first PBA senior tournament in uh, 1981. It was down at Don Carter Lanes in Louisiana. And, and he, was a very, he was a good bowler, a very good bowler. But he didn't, you know, he didn't go out on the tour for long because he did have his business interests uh, back home. You know, at one point, Beaumont had 11 locations in three yeah. states. It was a big business. It was, it might've been one of the first chain bowling center, uh, bowling pro shops. For sure. All right. So I know there's always a challenge when you write any kind of a book, but you must have had some serious challenges trying to write a book about somebody that had been dead for 40 years, right? Yeah. And Andy died in 1984, the ripe old age of 93. Uh, I did get a chance to talk to some people that knew him, but of course, most of the most of his contemporaries, you know, Ned Day, Hank Marino, Joe Willman, they're long gone. So I didn't, I didn't really get to, the only person I talked to that really bowled against him seriously was Carmen Salvino. And of course, Carmen is, I believe he's turning 90 this year. 
he, he had nothing but great things to say about Andy. You know, and I guess the challenges are, you, I got a lot of conflicting information that I had three different sources saying three different things and with no one around to corroborate, I just had to keep digging. And in a lot of cases, I just made the call and I said, you know what, I think, I think the evidence suggests that this story or this version of events was best. So that was the biggest challenge. Well, you mentioned that you talked to a few people um, besides Salvino. Who else did you contact? Anybody else from back in the day? Yeah, you know, the, the first person I got in touch with, of course, was Andy the second, uh, Andy's grandson. Uh, he told me to speak to John Laspina, the proprietor. And I knew John from Long Island. I bowled in his house, Farmingdale Lanes, which unfortunately is, is not around anymore. I bowled league there for years. So I actually stopped to Rockville Center, which is the center he still owns on Long Island. We chatted. He said, the first person you need to talk to is Johnny Petraglia. And of course, Johnny being Johnny, very forthcoming with his time, told me some great stories that, that are in the book. Uh, and then he put me in touch with Parker Bone, who I spoke to, and I spoke to Norm Duke uh, about trick shots. They, and again, you know, the people in the bowling business, they find out someone's writing a book about bowling. They, they couldn't help me enough. You know, so I think Parker and, Parker and Norm were the two bowlers that I think bowlers would know today uh, as being top professionals and, and also guys that do trick shots as part of their, as part of their appearances. Uh, those are the people that I think the fans would know, Phantom. Yeah, and, you know, I, I've done a lot of research myself over the years. I've been around a long time, and uh, most of these guys that have all these trick shots, they learned them all from Andy, either uh, personally or seeing them on YouTube, right? Yeah, you know, back in 2015, the PBA uh, had a big trick shot challenge, which they had done since the early 2000s, and they had a contest, and the contest was who's got the greatest trick shot? So they had Chris Barnes doing the Flying Eagle where he sets the pin up about 15 feet short of the pin deck and he makes three pins. Andy did that shot in 1934 <laughs> in his very first film. Yeah. Then Norm Duke did a shot where he, he took a ball and he spun it slowly down the lane. Uh, it hit the three pin and then he threw the ball behind it to take off the one, two, four. Andy did that in his 1948 film, Bowling Tricks. Now, the, the, other, the other entrants were they had Andy doing a shot where he makes the 5-7-10 with three balls. They call that the, the, the pawn shop special because it had three balls. Yeah. And the fourth, uh, the fourth one was Oscar Palermo, who threw the ball on a fly over a chair 30 feet down the lane. I'm pretty sure he did not get that one from Andy. No. <laughs> but they took the vote, and it came down to Barnes and Andy, and Andy won the vote. And I said, that's amazing because the guy hadn't lifted a trophy in 50 years. Yet he still, yet he still had the greatest trick shot ever. You know, I, I met Andy one time. I saw him twice. I met him once. Somebody introduced me to him. And uh, they said I was a lane guy. And Andy says, well, you can do the lanes for me anytime you want, <laughs> as long as you use olive oil. <laughs> <laughs> He he was a character, and you know the three guys uh, that are the old timers that were all Italians: Salvino and uh, Buzz Fazio and Andy Verapapa, all total characters. And uh, you couldn't have picked a better subject to write a book on, my friend. Well, thanks. It was it really was a labor of love, I can tell you. <laughs> so okay, I got a couple more questions here for you, and I'm sure they're interesting ones for our listeners because. They're interesting for me. What was the one thing that you found out that uh, 
might surprise a lot of people listening to this show. Probably the thing that would surprise most people was that Andy was not a fan of bowling action. Uh, you know, back in the day, you know, he's, he actually started bowling seriously in the late 20s. Now, at this point, he's in his late 30s. Uh, Joe Falcaro asked him to bowl a match against two guys from Philadelphia, and Andy averaged over 240 with his rubber ball. And that's when he kind of made a name for himself. But the only type of bowling there was back then, you had the ABC Championships, and you had the Peterson. Uh, by 1934, the Peterson had a fold for a few years. I think it came back in, in 1938. Uh, but, you know, Andy started doing trick shots because he didn't want to have to bet on himself. Hmm. And that was the only way to make any money is you bowl these challenge matches. And, uh, you know, he did bowl some. He bowled one against uh, Nelson Burton Sr. in 1938. You know, 40 games in New York, 40 games in Dallas, total pins. That's it. You know, shoo him up and bowl. Uh, but he didn't like what he didn't like was there was always shenanigans going on. Pin boys got bribed. Uh, the lane man, of course, that's why it's home and home because you would do the lanes uh, to to help your guy. Uh, the one the one story I have in the book is great. When he was in New York in the thirties, uh, some gamblers brought in a guy, and it, it, he only knew him as Pittsburgh Joe. <laughs> and I told this story in uh, the Ball's Journal article. And, and Andy lost the first two games, and one of his backers was down a few thousand. And Andy said, look, I'm going to quit. I don't want to lose any more money. And the backer begged him, no, 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 you got to keep bowling. You can get this guy. Well, he beat him the next three games, and then Pittsburgh Joe quit. So Andy strode over all happy, told his backer, hey, you got your money back, didn't you? And the backer said, hey, you know what? After the first two games, I bet on the other guy. <laughs> Yeah. So, so it was that sort of thing, you know, no loyalty, all sorts of hijinks and shenanigans. Uh, he didn't he he wanted to get paid for his talent. And without a pro tour, the only way to get paid for your talent was to do exhibitions and, and travel around the country. So I think that's something people would be surprised. He wasn't much of an action bowler at all. Yeah. You know, you mentioned a couple of names, um, Ned Day and Hank Marino. Uh, those guys are long gone before the PBA tour started, but they were truly great bowlers. There was so many great bowlers back in the day that never got any publicity because there was no publicity to be had. There was no tour, no television, nothing like that. But, you know, one of the other fellows that you mentioned, and what a great research man, this guy, uh, John Laspina. I've never met a man that's more respected in all of bowling than John. So, if you see him next time, I haven't seen him for about a year. I, I see him every year at Bowl Expo, but what a gentleman. And uh, he, this man, uh, bowling, owes him a huge debt because he's promoted the game for many, many, many years. Yeah, I mean, he's promoted the game and also the bowlers to veterans link. I mean, they've raised tens of millions of dollars. I mean, Johnny Petragli has kind of been the face of it, but behind the scenes, John is the one that's really driven it. And it's raised so much money for veterans. And I'm, I'm going to see John. Uh, I'm planning on going down to the PBA 50 tournament that he holds down in Clearwater in May. Uh, hopefully the book will be out by then. Maybe, maybe somebody wants a signed copy when I'm there. Cool. And he also wants me to go out to Bowl Expo in Denver. So I'm going to see him, I'm going to see him a few times. He, he kind of splits his time between Long Island and Florida. And I'm, I'm guessing this time of the year, he predictably spends most of the time down in Florida. At his centers down there. Cool. Well, I look forward to seeing you too at Bow Expo. We haven't yet met, but I'm looking forward to that. Um, 
couple more questions. What would you say was Andy's legacy, and how do you think he should be remembered? You know, one thing I found during writing this book was that he really didn't like being known as just a trick shot artist. And I think if you ask someone today that knows anything about the history of bowling and you mention Andy Varapapa, they would say, yeah, the, the trick shot guy. You know, I've seen the videos on YouTube. I've seen the films. And what people, most people don't know is that when he had the opportunity, he had a really good competitive record. Uh, one thing that held him back was he never won an ABC title, whereas all these other guys that we mentioned, Day and Marino, uh, go back to Jimmy Smith, they go Bluen, way back. They all had multiple eagles. He bowled well in the ABCs. I mean, at one point he had the high 10-year average, which is, that's, that's almost a bigger accomplishment than winning one because it shows consistency. Uh, but finally, in 46 and 47, he won the All-Star. And for our, our younger listeners, that's the precursor to the U.S. Open. Uh, back then, the All-Star was 100 games. 36 games qualifying. Top 16 made the match play finals, and each match was four games. So over eight games, you bowled 100 games. Over eight days, you bowled 100 games. Uh, he won the tournament in 46. He was 55 years old. He repeated in 47 when he was 56. The following year, he finished second to a name that other old-timers might remember, Connie Schwegler, who at the time was just a young buck. Now, you know, Andy was old enough to be the father of most of the other finalists. And something that Johnny Petraglia told me, he said, could you imagine if Jack Nicholas had won the U.S. Open back-to-back when he was 55? You know, pe- people would have lost their minds. Uh, and remember, back then... You know, Andy did have a healthy lifestyle. He, he rarely drank. He'd have a beer maybe on a hot day, uh, maybe have a whiskey once in a blue moon on a special occasion. Uh, he didn't work out, but he bowled almost every day of his life. <laughs> so he was, he was in good shape for a 55-year-old. But if you look at pictures of him, he's five foot six. He's a little stubby looking. He doesn't look like much of an athlete. But for him to win those two tournaments back to back, at the age of 55 and 56, that kind of proved every, to everybody that he could really bowl. And, and I think that pleased him a great deal because he did not want to be known as a trick shot artist. He wanted to be known as a great bowler. And, and I think that I'd hope that this book will help in that effort to get him remembered as one of the all-time greats and to use his words, not just a vaudeville performer. Yeah. So that, that's what he felt that some of his... Some of his some of his uh, competitors, fellow competitors, thought that's all he was. Well, I got to tell you, you know, I've been around a long time, like I mentioned, and to win a back-to-back All-Star like he did, which is now the U.S. Open, which you mentioned, 100 games. You got to be in some kind of super shape to do that, especially back-to-back. And at that age, that's remarkable, uh, unbelievable. You know, yeah, and, the la- and the last the last four days, they bowled 16 games a day. Yeah, They bowled yeah. Uh, four four-game blocks of these matches. And, of course, every match is Peterson point, so winning your matches mattered. Uh, all of this pressure, brand-new lacquered lanes, so generally the scores were not particularly high. With their, and I'm sure he used using a Brunswick Black Beauty or a Mineralite or something like that. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. It, it, was, it was quite an accomplishment. And, you know, the newspapers of the day correctly made it a very big deal. Uh, and to this day, the only people that have won the Open back-to-back are Dick Weber, Don Carter, and Dave Husted. That's it. 
in the 80 plus years of the Masters. Pete Weber didn't win it back to back. Belmonte didn't win it back to back. Walter Ray, even Earl, you know, no one, no one won that tournament back to back except those four players. Yeah, that he was remarkable. You know, um, just to get off topic a little bit, uh, we started a, a junior bowling club here at the Phantom Radio uh, because I looked back one day and I was thinking about the old days and I thought about how much fun I had when I was a junior bowler uh, back in 55 and 56, uh, which you mentioned those ages for Andy, but that's when I was bowling junior league. And those are two of the best years of my life. I had so much fun. And I was thinking about, I have a platform here, uh, Phantom Radio. I could start promoting these kids because the kids nowadays are unbelievable. I went to a tournament over here in Sacramento about six months ago. And the talent that was out there, the camaraderie, uh, the knowledge that these kids have. Uh, I asked the one girl, she was 14, I said, boy, what kind of a ball is that? She goes, well, it had this grid in it and had that finger holes and this, this and that weights. And I said, well, who takes care of your equipment? She goes, I do. And I said, well, who drills them for you? She goes, I do. You drill your own ball? Whoever didn't bowl, they ne never knew how to drill a ball. Hardwick didn't know how to drill a ball. These kids, 14 years old, they're so much smarter than us. So we started this junior bowling club because we're going to emphasize these kids and who knows, maybe someday some millionaire will come along and, and get these kids. They're the future of our sport. So if we don't promote them and they go somewhere else, uh, we're going to lose an entire sport. And we don't want to do that because it's a wonderful sport. You can do from the time you're a little kid. You can play your grandfather as far as uh, the handicap system goes. So it's a game for life, and we want to keep promoting it, and that's what we're going to do. But uh, – you know, I can see by the old clock and wall, we've got a couple of minutes left, and I, I want to ask you a couple more questions. So uh, I did see the article, like I mentioned, in Bowler's Journal, well-written. Uh, there's a lot of information on there we didn't touch upon today. But the most important thing is, how can our listeners get a copy of this book? Well, the book is still being is still being worked on. I'm, uh, right now, I'm waiting for the galleys to come back from the publisher, uh, make any last minute corrections, and I have to build the index. Uh, they're targeting March 15th as a publication date, and you'll be able to buy the book on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Target, you name it. Uh, it's McFarland Publishers. They publish a lot of sport books and a lot of popular culture books, and it'll also be available in ebook. Uh, so if you want to buy the Kindle. Uh, you'll be able to buy to buy it as an ebook as well, and I think in this day and age, um, it's important to have the ebook because that's how a lot of people a lot of people consume their books uh, electronically these days. So it'll be out in the spring. Hopefully, they'll stick to that March fifteenth date. Uh, but you know, in the meantime, I've got a Facebook page dedicated to Andy Varadkar. I've got a YouTube channel. Uh, if you go on those social media outlets and just type in Andy Varadkar book. I'm sure that my page will be the first the first hit. And I would encourage if anybody's been interested in what I've talked about today, um, I'm always posting new videos as I find them and, and excerpts from the book. Uh, that's that's where they can get a taste of what the book is all about on, on social media. OK. And what are the addresses of those two uh, medias? Well, on Facebook, I, I believe on Facebook, it's just Andy Verapapa book. Okay. And uh, same thing on YouTube. So if you just go into the search engine there and search for Andy Varapapa book, uh, my page should probably be the first hit. 
the name of the page is matches the title of the book, Andy Varapapa, Bowling's First Superstar. That's that's the name of the pages. All right. Now, this is probably a silly question because we're still about a month or and a half out. But how about pre-orders? Is there any way to get some pre-orders where people get first in line to, to get this thing when it comes out? Yeah, if you go if you go on Amazon, for instance, right now you can pre-order the book. Uh, you could also go directly to the publisher, uh, but the price is the same. Uh, so wherever I always wanted to say this, it's available wherever books are sold. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, <laughs> that's a great way to say it, Bart. But uh, hey, I want to have you back on. Uh, you can give me an update what's going on, uh, and when the thing comes out. We'll do it again, my friend. Uh, that was an interesting interview. Uh, I've learned a lot, and I'm sure our listeners did too. Uh, and we're all looking forward to it. And uh, my friend, John Mark, who interviewed you for the article, told me that you were a good guy, and, and he was certainly right. So I, I really enjoyed this, my friend. And uh, for Phantom Radio, I just want to thank our sponsors, Storm Bowling, and also Brad Edelman from the High Roller for all their help. And sponsorship along the years also my guy that uh, helped get this junior bowling club started his name is kowalski and he he's just a wonderful guy and my other volunteers are sam villarreal and brian uh, brian hirsch uh, he's a younger guy that his kid is involved so anything that you want to say to close the show my friend is the stage is yours you know i just wanted to say thanks for having me i enjoyed it and if anybody loves the history of bowling, this is a great place to start. I, I really appreciate you having me, and uh, it was a lot of fun. Well, I enjoyed it myself, and uh, I'm, I look forward to talking to you again somewhere down the road, my friend. So for Phantom Radio, this is The Phantom. When you're down and troubled And you need some love and care and nothing, well, nothing is going right. Close your eyes and think of me, and soon.